This episode is brought to you by Harris Resort SoCal. Nestled against a rolling hillside and just down the road from Palomar Mountain, guests at Harris Resort SoCal can expect gorgeous views, friendly staff, available night and day to encourage everyone to have a great time. When I was there recently, I had a chance to dine at California's first and the nation's largest house kitchen. And it's true, the beef wellington and sticky toffee dessert are great. The restaurant is inspired by the hit TV show and features a menu approved by the Michelin star celebrity chef, Gordon Ramsay himself. Hope to see you all at Harris Resort SoCal in 2024. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. I'm Kim. I'm one of the co-founders of Omsom, a proud and loud Asian food brand. I'm also a first-gen Vietnamese American and a BDSM educator, both of which are equally important parts of my life. Welcome to the Vietnamese. I'm your host, Kenneth Nguyen. Being part of a culture of nearly 100 million Vietnamese people in the world today comes with a lot of pain, proud history, and privilege. Join me as I highlight and explore the Vietnamese experience from all over the world. How do you think being Vietnamese made an impact in your life and work? It's hard to explain because it feels like the lens through which I view my whole entire identity. It's not like a part of me, actually. It's, it seeps into everything that I do. And so it's just given me, I think, a really unique perspective on life, deep gratitude um, and appreciation for my heritage and has really provided a guiding light to my career. You know, the word umsum is, uh, I'm not sure if it's a Northern or Southern term, but you know, it's, it's in the vernacular in Viet- Vietnam. How did you and your sister come up with that? Uh, or okay, <laughs> I guess the other question would be, you know, there's a lot of names that you probably threw around, but why that name? Yeah. So fun fact, before we were Omsom, we were actually a company called Oxtail, O-X-T-A-L-E. And we picked that name because I love using Oxtail and pho. I think it's a beautiful cut of meat. Um, and I also think that food is a carrier of cultures, hence the T-A-L-E. But as we started to kind of really think about the brand, you know, it was fun and I think it kind of cheeky and clever, but it didn't really feel like it carried the ethos of what Vanessa and I are trying to do. And as I thought about our mission, which is to reclaim and celebrate Asian flavors, but also Asian stories, we realized that there's this model minority myth that paints, flattens, erases, and silences a lot of Asian Americans. And And personally, as individuals, Vanessa and I wanted to build a brand that would be a middle finger to that and really be this rowdy, rambunctious, a little bit in your face. And we thought about when we were children and my parents, you know, would be like, don't don't be so unsome. And I love that idea of taking something that was actually once negative and taking it, reclaiming it and making it ours and being like, yeah, you know what? We're going to be unsome. We're going to be on out. We're going to be loud. And so taking that phrase and then kind of anglicizing it and making it ours and and bringing this Asian American twist to it and making it Omsom really just meant so much to us. And so, yeah, like it's something that we think really this proud and loud energy is something through which we build the business um, and really have like built our team around, um, built products around is that proud, loud energy. Octo is a pretty badass name too. <laughs> yeah, I'm not gonna lie. 
It's pretty badass. Now, if you are operating for a while with Oxtel and then you make a quick switch or you know transition over to Omsum, can you tell me about that process of like operating with a name for a while and then switching over and what's the logistics like? Yeah, so thankfully we hadn't launched yet. We were only kind of, but what was wild is that we had built a whole brand. We had actually started to mock up packaging in the Oxtail brand. And then we realized like, this isn't it. And you only have one shot to launch, you know, like, you know, I know that, you know, businesses can rebrand and pivot, but for us, we felt like we had one shot, you know, we don't have a ton of money as a brand at that time. And we're like, this is it. If we make this mistake, you know, it's, it's going to be hard to turn around from it. So we literally scrapped everything, you know, this added for sure months to our launch plan, but we're like, this needs to happen. So then we changed the company name. We ch- like, so there's legal paperwork. Um, we had to completely redo our brand identity, all of our packaging, all of our website, like, but we knew it was an investment worth making because, you know, you have like as a consumer brand, you have one moment to launch. And so we really wanted to really maximize it. What's your background in the business world? Because you sound like you guys both came into this with a prior knowledge of sort of CPG uh, industry knowledge or food. Where does the background come from? It's really interesting. So Vanessa and I are really different as sisters and as founders. So Vanessa is what I would call like left brain, right? So she went to Harvard, was a management consultant at Bain, where she actually focused mostly on e-commerce and CPG clients. So definitely had like the brains. (laughs) And I'm definitely, I'd say like right brain. I've been a creative, a writer, a marketer, a brand builder Um, for several years. I've been working in startups since I was 16 but actually spent the last four years before starting Omsom and Venture Capital. So her and I had throughout our, you know, relatively short careers had collected, I think, a pretty diverse and broad skill set of, you know, things that would help us in our entrepreneurial toolkit, but nothing really can prepare you to start a business. Like her and I could have gone and gotten MBAs. Her and I could have worked at startups for a really long time. But at the end of the day, we knew it was just about like taking a leap and going for it. And our heart and our mission was what caused us to quit our jobs. Like, you know, I think there are many ways to start a business. And and one way is like, you know, there are these intersecting trends and here's a white space where you can make a lot of money. That's one way. And I think the other way is like, I refuse to wake up on this earth without this business existing anymore because I feel so personally drawn to this mission. And that was where Vanessa and I were definitely coming from. So yes, like, I'm glad that we, you know, did what we did, went to great schools, learned a ton, you know, worked in, you know, corporate America and professional settings, but knew that we wanted to throw our weight behind something that mattered to us. And so that was the kind of inflection point that caused us to like put our jobs and start Omson. You, you know, what's crazy is what I'm noticing the pattern in all of these creative creators, right? Like you and, and Sarah over at Wind Coffee Supply and no. so many people come from these backgrounds that are sort of semi tangentially related, but they're, <laughs> they're sort of their social missions kind of guide the brand. And I think that when you have a social mission and you want to, you know, reset industries on a social level, it drives the, the, the brand a little bit differently. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I'm going to tell you that it drives a band brand differently, but it also introduces a lot of heartache mm. because 
your business failures aren't just professional failures, but they also feel deeply personal. And I think that's been the greatest and the hardest thing about building this business is like the wins are so high. Like you feel you're like, this is, this is my personal calling on this earth as Kim fam. Right. But the losses and the the lows feel even lower because this isn't just like a, Oh, nine to five, you know, I'm just working on this. And you know, if it doesn't work out, it, doesn't work. it feels like, like, especially for Vanessa and I, like our values as first gen Vietnamese American women are so tied to Omsom. Like, I, I am directly inspired by my community and my culture and my heritage when I build Omsom. And so in many ways, sometimes our failures at Omsom sometimes can feel like failures to my family or to my parents um, or to Vietnamese Americans even. And so it's, it's, a, it's a really intense roller coaster to ride. And it's not for everybody, for sure. But I'm really, I'm ultimately really grateful for it. Do you mind if I ask you what the lows and the the bottoms of the roller coaster rides have been for you? It's like every day, <laughs> like in the same day that we, you know, maybe secure an investor check or we make a really great hire. In that same day, in the same like eight hour time span, there's also a huge supply chain issue, or we have to throw away tons of packaging because there was a misprint, or um, you know, or we found out that we didn't get into a store. Like it's, it's literally every day that there are little failures. And I think my biggest learning curve as a founder is just learning how to rock with all of it and not to feel like jerked around. Damn. That's an analogy for everybody in life, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, God, we all go through it and we just don't advertise it or put it out there. But I mean, this right. is a struggle. The, the more you do your, your work, it's just, especially if you love what you do, it's just a struggle. Yes. I think that's something I've definitely learned as I get older is like, oh, this isn't just starting a business. This is life. Like everybody has their challenges regardless of whether or not you're starting an, a, a sister-led business. Um, and so I think I'm just learning how to have grace um, and, and enjoy the ride pretty much. My wife and I had a conversation two nights ago and she said, uh, yeah. I'll never get into business again. She, you know, she had a business. I had a, a few businesses in my life. And she said, imagine 20 years from now, you walking away and you having nothing. That happens all the mm. time. She goes, she can't deal with it. And I kept thinking about that too. I'm like, wow. why am I doing this? Why do I do business? Why do I? But at the end of the day, there's no other, I have no other options because that's the only thing I know how to do. Um, yeah. so it's pretty scary. Yeah, in many ways, I kind of feel like it is my legacy. Like, I think a lot of refugees are inherently entrepreneurial, not just Vietnamese, right? Like, there's a scrappiness, there's a resilience, there is a creativity that I think I grew up with. Like, those are my aunts and uncles and my parents. Like, they made it work, e even within a country and within systems that are oftentimes not made for us. And I look at that and I'm like, that's my legacy. Like, I am continuing to do what they have taught me to do and what has helped our communities survive for generations. It looks different right now, but it is an extension of that. And so I feel really heartened by that. Like I, I stand on the shoulders of giants. I really do feel that way. And that's because like my grandma and my great grandma, like all of them have just made it work. And that's really inspiring. 
You, you sound like you have very progressive parents. I've listened to some other programs that uh, you've talked about them. They seem very open-minded, very progressive. How do you think that they got that way? Do you think that you had something to do with it or they came into the world that way? I have no idea if I'm being completely honest with you. They are definitely very progressive and completely unique to Vietnamese Americans. I, I obviously know a lot of Vietnamese Americans and my parents in particular, my father. I don't know what happened to make him the way that he is but i remember one of my most like memorable learning moments from him is like I, I can't remember exactly what he said but he's like i came to the u.s for you to be the most individual weirdest version of yourself wow and i and i took that lesson and i freaking ran with it wow. but I, I i mean i look at him and i i look at the decisions he made he was very different like he made a lot of decisions throughout his life that kind of had him perhaps deviate from the average kind of Vietnamese American refugee in Boston. And I'm, I don't know. I just, he really pushed me to be quite like anti-authority. He really pushed me to question everything. He really pushed me to be introspective. He loved whenever Vanessa and I did things for ourselves. Like they never once pushed us to be like doctors and lawyers. Um, he loved that I was creative. He really encouraged my writing he loved when I dressed different. Like he was just like, yeah, like be weird. Like that's why I came to America mm. so that you would have a future to be fully yourself. Cause I think in many ways he was robbed of that. Um, and so, yeah, I'm so grateful. I mean, and my mom is really great. I think she takes his lead sometimes on us. Um, but I'm, I'm so thankful for them. They are absolutely the reason why Vanessa and I are here doing what we're doing. Like they taught us so many lessons about resilience. Yes. But also like, individuality and self-expression and authenticity to self. Um, and yeah, that's, that's why I'm here. You hear comedians joke about like everybody, no matter how perfect parents you have, everybody has some shit against their parents and no matter, oh my God. but it doesn't sound like that for you. It sounds like, Oh no, we have a lot of shit. Don't worry. Like <laughs> there's absolutely tension and conflict and friction. And I think many kind of multi-generational immigrant households have that there's a lot that we actually fundamentally disagree on um and it's really hard to reconcile some of those things because i'm like how can someone who i take so much pride in and who i feel directly inspired by and who i'm very similar with how can we sometimes have such differing opinions on things mm. and that's as i've gotten older i've been learning how to see my parents fully i think for a really long time especially in vietnamese culture you know this we hold our elders up on such pedestals they're like you have to respect them you have to like bow to them physically mentally spiritually etc and as i've gotten older i'm starting to move away from that and more trying to see them as like humans right like full humans who can be scared who can be wrong who ha also have trauma and who also have experiences that I will never experience. And I'm trying to see them fully as opposed to being like, oh, you're my parent and you are untouchable. And if you're wrong, then everything else in my moral framework is wrong. I'm trying to move away from that. Yeah, it's a healthy move. <laughs> trying. <laughs> yeah. You know, when you and Vanessa were coming up and you guys both had your own jobs and you guys were coming along, I mean, did it one day both of you sat down and said, hey, let's come up with a business idea. What was the evolution of Omsum from the very get-go? Yeah. 
I wish there was like a super clean story where we like got together and like, let's, as you said, let's start a business. But I think if I'm being honest with you, the 2016 election was the real turning point for both of, I mean, for a lot of America, right? But I think for her and I in particular, we felt like, oh my gosh, there's so much hurt. And there's so much like, like anger and othering against communities of color. And her and I felt like we needed to do something, even if small, even if in our lane, to take pride for us, obviously, in our Asian American heritage. Like, I think that 2016 election and everything that followed really was like the flame. And then over time, you know, her and I started talking more. I've always known that I want to start a business with Vanessa. I think she's super smart. She's my best friend. I trust her like no one else on this earth. I would go to the ends of the earth for her. And I've always known I want to start a business. So I was just kind of waiting for her to build up the risk tolerance, honestly, because she was like Harvard, Bain consultant. Like she had all of the, you know, check marks on her resume. But I think Vanessa, you know, she's coming up on year two at Bain. I had quit my job. I was living in London and I was backpacking through Latin America and Vanessa met me down in Bolivia. And she met me down there and we were, you know, we're spending weeks together, kind of backpacking and traveling and hiking. And I remember on one of the hikes, she kind of turned to me and she was like, I think I'm ready to leave Bain. And I think I'm ready to build something that means something that has impact. And I, I kid you not, I felt like I had been waiting my whole life for her to say that to me. And, and I was like, oh, that's really interesting. I mean, I'm, of course I'm down. I'm ready to go. Let's go. But I'm curious, like, why do you want to, like, why now? Yeah. And I'll never forget this. I think it's one of the most admirable things Vanessa has ever told me. Is she was like, you know, I'm, I'm in Bain. I'm in this big corporation. And I just don't see any Southeast Asian women in positions of leadership. Like, I have no mentors who look like me. And she's like, okay, so I have two options. I either, one, stick in, stay in this, stick inside the machine, make my way up, and eventually get to that place of leadership where I can start to mentor other Southeast Asian women, but she, or she's like, or I leave and I try and create impact outside of the machine. And she's like, Kim, you know what, with option number one, I could do it, but I bet you that by the time I get to the top of that machine, I will have had to compromise and change my values to be able to succeed in that machine that I might not be the same person that I am right now. And she's like, and I think I have to like, maintain my values, stay true to them. And the only way that I can make an impact is if I build something separate from the machine. And that is something I talk about quite a lot as an activist, where sometimes a lot of communities of color, we want to pull up a seat to the table to change the table. And I'm like, let's not pull up a seat. Let's build our own freaking table and, and do it ourselves. And so when she said that, I was like, done. Like, I'm fully aligned with you. I really admire the way that you want to create impact. And so let's build this business. But we had no idea what it was going to look like. We had no idea it was going to be food. We had no idea it was going to be awesome, all of this. But we knew that we had this mission that we both really cared about. And that was to reclaim, celebrate Asian flavors and Asian stories. Okay, but what you just said, that reclaiming Asian stories, Asian that's like a, a, like a 15-second clip of probably years of boiling down to like, how did it arrive yeah. how did it arrive at that mission statement i mean that mission statement was was something we arrived at pretty quickly because we knew that 
we wanted to do something that had like an activist nature, which is around like, we want to do things our way and we're not going to play within like white spaces, frankly, white owned spaces. But in terms of the food angle, I think Vanessa and I have always been drawn to food. Vanessa worked in restaurants. I actually used to run a pop-up dinner when I was living in Ireland. Um, food was a love language. It's how my parents communicated to us. Um, it was also something we deeply valued as a family. Like every night, regardless of how late my dad got home from work or how, if Vanessa had track practice, whatever, we would always sit together and eat as a family and, and gum, right? And that is like rice, a soup, and you know a meat and a veg and we had that every night and growing up in boston in a town that was 98 percent white this was off food was oftentimes the first way for me to begin to access my identity like i once i moved to college i started speaking vietnamese way less i had a much smaller vietnamese community in new york at the time and so food was how i started to you know embrace my identity and so Vanessa and I both knew that like, we love food so much. So much of our travels of our life revolves around food that we knew we wanted to build a food business. And so it just became a matter of like tying together our passions as well as like this larger mission statement around our values. And how did it go from, you know, I think you start out predominantly like a small flavor and then it grew into multicultural or was it always a design to go kind of pan-asian yeah i mean i think we knew that asian american food was really interesting to us and that we wanted to build something yeah across multiple asian cuisines but we knew that enabled to do that and do it right frankly we had to involve chefs of those backgrounds so yes we're vietnamese that's a big part of our brand but we're not experts in korean food or filipino food or chinese food and that's frankly not our place to be so when we knew that we wanted to hit multiple Asian cuisines, we're like, all right, then we have to involve chefs of these backgrounds in every single one of our products. They have to be involved in R&D and marketing, sourcing even. And on top of that, they're going to get a royalty fee. So all, for all the products that we sell, all of our chefs get a percentage of the sales because it's important for us that if we're building this radical business that is trying to reclaim these flavors, then we have to do it the right way, which means compensating folks of these backgrounds every step of the way. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Yeah. I love that. Love it. I admire that uh, way of thinking. But at the end of the day, does Om Sam as a Vietnamese name really lead the way with uh, Vietnamese flavors or is it really just equal across the board with just all different cultures? What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Yeah, like we really try to be an Asian American brand. Like we're really third culture. I think us being Vietnamese and our story of being Vietnamese refugees, um, children of Vietnamese refugees is really important to us. And it's kind of like the ethos and the lens through which we view our business. But it's not a Vietnamese company. We're not trying to be a Vietnamese food business. We're trying to be an Asian American food business. And with our roots in obviously kind of the Vietnamese American perspective that we have. You know, I want to go back to the relationship you have with your sister. Uh, I have an older brother and I've yeah. always dreamt of working with him and we do, we do different yeah. projects, but there are a lot of, you sound like me and she's more like my brother. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I could kind of relate to, to that kind of relationship, but it's difficult sometimes. No. 
And what what kind it's of so hard? Oh gosh, yeah. It's in in the beginning, it was really hard because I mean, you know, this you have an older brother. Like, I think much of our relationship in the early days of our life was inherently competitive, right? Like, yeah. it was just the two of us, two sisters. We were also in a mostly white school system. And so it was really easy for the world to pit us against each other because there's no other Asian folks. It's just, oh, you, your sister, I had your sister for, you know, English or like, oh, Kim is doing this or Vanessa's doing this. Oh, Vanessa has great grades are really good, whatever, right? And we're only two years apart. So for much of our life, we were pitted against one another. And I think we went to college and I think we thought a lot of that had gone away. But then when we started the business, like, and you know this, you started multiple businesses, like you become your most raw, vulnerable self in hard situations. And uh, building a business is freaking hard. And so all of these old traumas and narratives and insecurities that we had about each other and about ourselves all reared their head in the first year where like her and I didn't know how to work with each other. Her and I didn't know how to resolve conflict. Her and I didn't know how to take up space and give space because for so long we were just like pitted against each other. And so thankfully Vanessa, who's incredible, spent a lot of time like coaching us and leading very vulnerable conversations of like, Hey, yes, Kim, I know you're my sister, but sometimes when we go into investor meetings, like you're, you take up a lot of space and I have always been your younger sister. And so I kind of default to you, but I'm CEO. And like, I actually need to be strong and, and pitch like, you know, can we talk about how we remove some of that sister energy and just make it about equals? And I didn't even know that I was doing that because wow. my whole life, right? Like there's little things like that that pop up all the time and fights are much more personal. They get much pettier quickly because you're family. And so you're quite used to duking it out, you know, where things get personal versus obviously in professional settings, you know, you know, you're not talking about like, oh, well, if you were so fucking annoying, you know, like it's that type of stuff that comes up. And so we had to work through a lot of that, but thankfully now, you know, we're two, three years into this. I have deep, we have nothing but deep love and trust for one another. I know that any decision that she makes, I can fully hundred percent not even have to think about or approve because I trust her. Who else on this earth am I going to trust as much as I trust her? Absolutely. Um, and I know I, I I really trust her judgment. I think she will always do things with good intentions at heart. So even if it's never, you know, even if it's not the right decision, quote unquote, it it was because I know that she was trying her best. And I, I think she'd say the same about me. You know, I, I think um, as a parent myself, I think thinking about your parents, looking at the two of you function in a highly functioning uh, relationship in business is a very proud thing. I think to myself that, well, I've told my children, they're only three and five, but I said, you know, and I, and I, I try to plant this in their brain yeah. because very close to my, my brother. And I always think and tell them like, if you guys fight and don't talk to each other and split up, I'd rather die. Yeah. Yeah. Just to see two siblings like you and your sister or my brother and I get along in, in the world and business and love each other so much. That's like a parent's like proudest moment. You know? yeah. yeah. I mean, I say this all the time that like, if Omtham succeeds at the sake of my relationship with my sister, it is a failure. Like I, I would rather Omtham burn and crash down yep. and die than our relationship get compromised in the process. Like totally. that's my blood. And especially like, that would be 
not honoring the very roots of this business. And so, yeah, I, I hear you on that. And it's not easy, but, uh, you know, yeah. the fact that the, the, the mindset is there is, is amazing. I want to switch over, uh, shift gears a little bit because, uh, you know, I know that Amsam and Another World is equally as important to you, uh, the education of this other world. Um, can we talk about the world of BDSM and how you got into it? Yeah, for sure. Um, oh, gosh, I'm going to try and keep this short. So I got out of a really lovely long-term vanilla relationship of four or five years, a couple of years ago. And I did that thing that happens to a lot of people when you get out of a long-term relationship where you look up and you blink and you're like, who am I? Like, <laughs> like well, who am I? And I think as part of that introspection and excavation of self, I realized something that I've spent a lot of time thinking about, which is around like sexuality, play and connection. And in particular, I think for a lot of Asian women in this country and around the world, honestly, our perception of our sexuality is very much rooted in colonialist ideas of femininity, softness, um, and frankly, submissiveness. Like you think about, you know, anything from like Miss Saigon to Madame Butterfly to, um, gosh, like countless, like full metal, full metal jacket, like a lot of these films because the West's first encounters with Asian women were often in like sex work uh, environments, there became this idea that Asian women have to be submissive. Asian women have to be, have to kowtow to men and in particular Asian, um, white men, sorry. And that just, it just didn't sit right with me because in the same way that I work at Amsam to dispel myths around Asian Americans, I also want to do that around Asian American women and our sexualities. And so BDSM kind of became the vehicle for me to explore what it's like to build intentional connection and intimacy in ways that are fully rooted in consent, care, and communication. And so that was like the lens through which I started to explore BDSM, not because I wanted to become a dominatrix, but because I wanted to see what it's like to create care and joy and, and pleasure rooted in a place of pure co-creation. And I think, I don't know, I grew up in a pretty sex positive household for a Vietnamese American family. Yeah. Like my parents were like very sexual beings who felt like powerful in their sexuality. Like my dad had Playboys and Macs and magazines lying around the house. And I talked to him now and he's like, I did that intentionally. I wanted wow. you to see bodies. I wanted you to understand sexual, it's like sexuality. And I didn't want you to be scared by that. And honestly, I think about that and I was like, they're fucking radical. Like, I don't know any Vietnamese American parents who would do that. And, and I think them showing us that you can love this part of yourself. You can put light on this part of yourself and you can use it as a way to find connection and joy and intimacy with other human beings. That was like the heart of my practice. And so, yeah, I started learning about BDSM. I started training. Um, and now I really enjoy educating folks on BDSM and kink and fetish in general because it's a world that is so clouded in dark and shame and stigma. And I think that can lead to a lot of hurt, a lot of pain, a lot of trauma at the worst of it. And so I really want to help empower folks to 
to feel pride and to feel ownership and accountability as they start their own journeys into BDSM. So yeah, that's my long story short on that. <laughs> and it, But it sounds like you didn't come from a world of well, I don't know. I'm making assumptions here. You didn't come from the world of fetish or come from the world of BDSM. You were coming out of a vanilla relationship and did some introspection and yes. voila, you slowly, you know. So it makes me question uh, human beings, right? Do we do we have so much underneath the surface that we just don't allow it to come out like for the most part? Or you know how does this mechanism work mm -hmm. i mean it feels like everybody's walking the like walking dead sexually <laughs> you know i mean I just... yeah that's a great question i do feel like because of the shame and the stigma that societally we have put upon our sexuality especially for women especially for queer people especially for people of color we pack on trauma, insecurity, shame, ego, and that oftentimes stops us from being fully authentic to our desires and to ourselves with our partners. Do I believe that everyone's kinky? I don't know. I don't know. Maybe. I do think we as a society have created the normal vanilla standard, and we have told people that if you stray from that, you're weird or something's wrong with you or you must have been hurt as a child. And I think all of those messages really stop us from perhaps from connecting with parts of ourselves that would bring us joy. And, and what I love about kink and BDSM is that it doesn't even have to be sexual. Like it doesn't even have to be sexual. It could just be a way that we connect with human beings and it doesn't even have to involve orgasms. Um, and I really am just pushing for a world where we can feel less shame around finding out and expressing those parts of ourselves. But yeah, I do think every, in my opinion, I don't know. I do think everybody has, you know, maybe non-normative desires and that's totally okay. As long as we communicate about it, we share consent, of course, um, and we do it with care. You know, uh, last year, uh, I, I think, you know, Bao Win, the director. Um, yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> he and a, and a group of friends of his were at a dinner and then they took the, I, I think there's a test that you could take online. Oh Yeah. <laughs> And then, and then he told me about it. And then a few weeks later, I took a test on a hike with him and turns out that like, I have these, the most vanilla instincts, right? <laughs> but here's what I thought. Here's what I thought. Um, as I'm talking to you is, well, do I have vanilla instincts or is the questions that are being read out loud, making me answer out loud a certain way and not really allowing me to really tap into my deep, deep, darkest or, yeah. or, or buried uh, desires, you know, what is yeah. it? I think it's a combination of things. I think one, it's impossible for us to fully say whether or not our desires are fully ours or informed by society, right? Like even on a subconscious level. And so I'm less interested in that and more interested in what feels like authentic and joyful to you now. So that's kind of one thing I'll say. And the second thing is BDSMtest.org. I know it very well. It's good as a starting point, but it's frankly written in a very flawed way as you picked up. Yep. It relies on a lot of really, I think, reductive and sometimes uh, not the most inclusive or intersectional of ways. It's done in a way where power equals dominance equals masculine 
right? And that's really reductive. And and so again, a good starting point, but I would not use that as like the Bible for whether or not you're kinky and what you like. I think it's just a good starting point to be able to understand like, what are some of the words that we're using in this community? What are some of the actions or you know, titles being used, but I don't think it's a great defining sort of text in the way that we might use, say, like Myers-Briggs. Yeah, a lot of tests uh, like the LSAT is designed to weed out or to kind of like structurally put together a certain group of people to, to fit in. And I felt like that was not necessarily the BDSM test, but it was sort of borderline SAT where, you know, you have to be a certain in a certain kind of like group of people to kind of like go through this test and make it validate you. Mm-hmm. It, just didn't, mm-hmm. it just didn't sit right uh, taking it. But then now I'm, I want to cross back over into food using this analogy. Yeah. At what point in your flavor testing cycle do you know that you've hit the right flavor because just like the bdsm uh you know test and and flavors how do we know when we hit the right tone the right vibes the right mood yeah Yeah, i mean what's really interesting about all of this even bdsm is that it's so deeply personal and so deeply subjective there is no objectivity in terms of like good or bad i think in all of these worlds all that matters is that you do things with care and with intentionality. Um, I've never even drawn this parallel before, but now I'm like thinking about it. And I'm like, whoa, yeah, that's really interesting. With with Amsam in particular, with R&D, we're not trying to create the best, like anything. I mean, I hope that it's very tasty and very delicious and, and is category winning. What I mean by the best is that there is no singular way to experience an Asian flavor or an Asian dish or an Asian cuisine, right? So all that we can do is work with our chefs, honor their legacy, their community, their cuisine as best as we can, treat it with as much cultural integrity as we possibly can, and ultimately create a damn delicious product that is a chef's version of a dish. I, I will never say that my products are representative of Asian dishes. I will never say that they represent Asian cuisines or even Asian communities. That's not what we do. And I think when we set anything up to, to represent something, we set it up to fail because there's no singularness in a lot of these topics that we're talking about. And so, for example, like even with our, our yuzu miso glaze that we work with, um, uh, Maiko at Beso here in New York with, this is, again, not the only yuzumiso yaki that should ever be made, but this is her version of it that we love, that we know is tasty, that we've balanced across our palates, her palates, as well as consumers. And that's how we kind of end up triangulating around a specific formulation. But there is no one way to make it best. And I kind of love that about food. And I love that about human connection. And I love that about BDSM is that there is no one right way to do anything. And so all almost what matters more is the process versus the final result. Although the final results are very tasty. (laughs) (laughs) You know, if only the world can embody this sort of ethos and this way of looking at it, because it's inclusive. If you think about it, right. It's uh, it's open and it's inclusive at the same time. And, you know, the parallels that you have in your personal life with BDSM and then your public life at UMSOM, it's, it's, it's all of it is in sync. And I, I really look forward to, uh, you know, 
hearing more about the development and watching the brand uh, as the years go go along. Now, have you been to Vietnam? I have. Yeah, we used to go before the pandemic quite often. Um, my mom's entire side of the family is still in Vietnam. What what part? Um, right now, I believe most of them are near Saigon. Yeah. Yeah. It's a wonderful place, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, I in another life, when I'm not working on this business, yeah. I would love to spend more time there and actually like start a restaurant or a bar there. Yeah, That's that would be the dream. It's really fun. Um, where can we find Omsam? Yes, you can find us online at omsam.com and at omsam on Instagram. Uh, you can also find us in every single Whole Foods in the U.S. So you can walk into any Whole Foods and you can find Omsam in the international aisle. Very cool. And we can also find you on TikTok, right? Yes. Um, on TikTok, we are at we are Omsam. And then if you want to find me personally, you can just find me at Kim of the Internet on all of the platforms, Instagram, TikTok, uh, all the things. Very cool. Kim, thank you so much today. Uh, I really had a great time getting to know you and hopefully, you know, we can hear more about uh, the product and, and your, your whole path uh, on future yeah. episodes. Awesome. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Vietnamese with Kenneth Nguyen. The Vietnamese is produced by Brittany Tran. Special thanks to Jane Nguyen, Catherine Nguyen, Tina Pham, Sydney Jamie, and Christo Trin. Please find us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at The Vietnamese Podcast. You can also find us on YouTube where you can subscribe, like, and comment. Please rate and give us a review wherever you find our podcast. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low-net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.